Hello, hello. And welcome to Hometown Daily. I'm actually going to mute that music. Yeah, oh gosh, you know what? I really like it. It's background music. Let's just get it going. Today, Hometown Daily, Season 2, Episode... Did I make a typo? 360. <laughs> right? No. What episode is it? Yeah, 360. Wow. December 26th, 2023. Everything is all mixed up. Yeah, my show note says 260. Typo. This is how the sausage is made, folks. Today we're going to be talking about Rebel Moon is a mix of every space genre. Dip your crackers. Banking on Airbnb. Wendy's has good wings, but Popeye's just up their game. Buzz about coffee in Singapore. Star Trek replicators could be based on quantum matter. A simulation is leaking into other simulations. This could cause an explosion of crop growth. If it wouldn't kill you. We need natural fiber to replace plastic and perfect thing to read about heading into 2024. Before I do the transition, I'm Mayor Watt. That's hometown.com. And up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI. No, you can't do that. You want to say hi from on high? Hello, hometown citizens. Let's get into the show. Uh, we are in the time machine going back to December 26th, 2023 for season two, episode 360, because in the prime timeline, it's actually January 1st, 2024, because we missed 10 days. We're going back and fixing this. Otherwise, who knows what kind of chaos will ensue. We'll try not to affect future history by talking about the fact that we're in a time machine and uh, guess I've Can we too much. create a black hole or something? That's right. That's horrible. Uh, oh, whoa. Wait a minute. Did we cause the earthquake? Oh, I hope not. And the tsunami? Oh, no. Ooh. We did use the time machine for five days prior to more than five days. Ah, well, sorry, Japan. The time machine did it. So I guess we're going to have to, we're going to detect another random 7.5 earthquake somewhere. Um, that might be based on the time machine. Uh -oh. and it's dual uh, quantum singularities that power it. Uh, a la John Teeter's pickup truck. So I'm kind of rambling today, but let's get into it. We already have all 10 of the articles. First one on deck. Rebel Moon. Part one is Netflix's number one movie on the global chart. Zack Snyder's sci-fi epic Rebel Moon Part one, A Child of Fire. Debuts as number one on Netflix's global top 10, despite the bad reviews. Yeah. Um, 
Rebel Moon wants to be everything. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that it's a little bit uh, Star Trek, a little bit Star Wars, a little bit uh, <laughs> um, Firefly, a little bit. I don't know. What else could it be? Uh, it, it's pretty much every space genre. It's uh, <laughs> got elements of Dune in it. Um, you know, fantastical beasts and stuff. So what is Rebel Moon? The interesting part about it is in part one, what you suspect is happening isn't happening. <laughs> the person you're introduced to may or may not oh, right. be who you think may they not are. be a feature. <laughs> well, also right. there may be a change to who you think might be the focal point. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite interesting, right? Adam Benz over at screen rant, put the article article together. Um, it is interesting. One of the things that I find astonishingly dense about this entire thing is that this mega ship that's in orbit drops down a, a few and kind of just poots out a little bit of ship. Right. The ship lands at a ho-hum populated area with what, 25, 50 people, maybe? Maybe, right. Expects 10,000 bushels of uh, wheat of crop. Right, but there's almost no way they could have had that much. And not to a stone's throw, a day's trip ride on some uh, orakai, I think it's called horse, is a metropolis, a veritable New York City of population looking very much like Firefly. Everybody is basically from Firefly. The movie received 54.1 million hours viewed and 23.9 million total views in its first week on Netflix. Snyder's passionate fan base and unique visual flair contribute to Rebel Moon's success despite negative reviews. Look, I dig the show. Um, it was entertaining, but it's not like award winning. Right? Yeah, I think so. It says now shortly after its release on December 21st, the first part of Zack Snyder's uh, sci-fi epic is officially the number one movie on Netflix. That's because there's really nothing else epic pending. If Dune part two were to have dropped at the same time as Rebel Moon, Rebel Moon would not even be known right now. I don't That's think. That's true. They're like in a drought from things like Dune. Right. And I'm, I'm craving epic. You know, I, I want, I've got star Wars burnout. Uh, star Trek is episodic and in a can nothing epic about it. Although it wants to be, um, I, I just don't really, I don't really get it. It doesn't know what it wants to be. It seems to meander around. It has caught me off guard one time, and that is at the end of the first part. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it, um, but 
you, you kind of go, where's this going? And um, sure enough, you, you, who you think or what you think might be happening isn't really happening. Um, and then there's a lot of supernatural. There's supernatural in this. Because, well, it's even got Warhammer 40k vibes because of the supernatural aspect of it. So there's something so wayward about this. And I can't wait for April 19th, 2024 for part two, the scar giver. Um, that actually kind of gets hinted at, you know, referring to somebody as scar giver. Um, and there is at least one person that has a scar in this show. Uh, but they don't really overtly talk about it. So I guess we'll see, but I think that it's going off in so many different directions and in, in turn, in terms of inspiration that, um, it's hard to focus on what it is, what it wants to be and where it's going. I certainly hope the world building continues, uh, but I've been like this before. Um, uh, what's his name? I am Groot, the guy that voices I am Groot. Oh, goodness. My my brain. Hold on, I'm trying to see who that is. Uh, yeah. Is it Kevin Michael Richardson? No, it's Vin Diesel. <sighs> Get out. Um, so, uh, Vin Diesel has uh, Pitch Dark and the Necromonger... Uh, world building uh, movies um, with the, the whole hey, let me see if I can pull something up here uh, dun, 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 dun. Chronicles of Riddick and, and um, there's supposed to be a there's more world building here around the Chronicles of Riddick and uh, Pitch Black I think it's called Pitch Black um, which is the first movie and then there's uh, Riddick, and then there's another one after that. Um, I love the world building and the epic nature of it, but if it doesn't grab hold of people like Star Wars did, like Star Trek does, it's not just it's just not going to go anywhere. And that's kind of the problem with what happened with Firefly. Epic potential world building, and then pittered out. Don't you think part of the problem with Rebel Moon compared to, say, Star Wars or Star Trek is that, I don't know, it seems like it has darker undertones in Rebel Moon, and I think that can be off-putting to some uh, viewers. Yeah, it's much more, much, much, much more over in deleting people, right? Um, it's much more violent. I mean, when you're watching stuff like Star Wars and Star Trek, it seems to be omitted. The actual demise of people seems to be emitted or omitted. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> emitted um, for the most part. Some of the cinematic side, like the movies will show like blood and stuff like that. It's gotten darker. I guess society is starting to appreciate it. But I, I love the potential for Rebel Moon. Sucks that I have to wait four months now to. 
maybe the difference though is like when Star Trek or Star Wars, I think you walk away with kind of a positive feeling at the end of the episode or the movie. And right. I don't feel like Rebel Moon really evinces that. Well, it, part one definitely didn't. <laughs> right. In fact, the whole thing, the whole the whole of part one, like in all of the movies, uh, all of the Star Trek movies, all of the Star Wars movies, um, you walk away going, there's potential positive here. But at the end of Rebel Moon, no. Because the mystery of what should have happened to the antagonist at the end was wiped out in part one of Rebel Moon. So I don't want to go into specifics because I really don't want to spoil it for people. I mean, it's only two weeks old. Um, I'd rather not uh, kill the whole thing. So we'll come back and, and uh, talk about Rebel Moon probably this coming weekend a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll learn some more about Rebel Moon and uh, talk about it during um, the continuity report, which is going to be I think we're going to have it set for Sunday and, um, and we'll have, um, reality hacker for Saturday. So we'll add that anyway. Uh, we'll see this again at the end of the week. Let's keep on going to the and next. We'll also discuss it when part two's out. All right. And yeah, of course we'll continue to talk about more specifics. Okay. Let's keep going. Uh, the next article is in uh, hometown daily cockatoos dip their crackers in water like cookies in milk according to a study that shows that parrots the parrots are surprisingly picky about texture um yeah so people are uh, some people are texture freaks they don't really like certain things a certain way i shouldn't really call them texture freaks you know, some people don't like this. Some people don't like that. They don't like to commingle their food because of this or that. Um, but apparently cockatoos do that too. Scientists happened to notice some captive cockatoos dipping their food in water before they ate. They concluded the birds uh, were likely doing this to change the texture of their food. It's the first time that they've seen it in the parrot family. Couldn't they be doing something like washing their food? like I we suspect. see from some other animal yeah what is that what is it um like seals no not seals um well i was even thinking things like cats do some of that yeah cats do it and um what is the one that is it otters maybe otters there you go otters do it uh yeah i think that there are several that do it and I think it's interesting, but there's a lot of these idiosyncrasies in the animal world. Um, like I just learned yesterday that people naturally fold their hands. They weave their fingers together, right? We have a citizen here in uh, hometown that um, described how people naturally, when they put their, their hands together and they interlock their fingers, that there's a dominant um configuration like left thumb over right thumb when you weave them together or right thumb over left thumb when you weave them together and go and do this right now and you'll find that one feels comfortable 
and the other one almost upsetting. It, it, it isn't just, oh, you know, that doesn't, that's not right. It's, you're like, this is unnatural. But if you do it the other way, which is nothing more than just shifting fingers, one finger. You just go like that or you go like that. And it throws off everything. It's like putting your fingers on the wrong home row on the keyboard. And you're like, well, well no, this isn't right. No. Kind of weird. So maybe that's the same thing. It, these birds are just the ones that decided that they're going to start dipping their crackers. Maybe Not they were bored. <laughs> they were in captivity. Other birds, including grackles and blackbirds, have been known to dunk their food in water before they eat it. Some cockatoos might feel similarly. According to a new study, they can't have a cookie without some milk. Now, the article is over in Business Insider. Maya Focht is the author. There you go. Look at that pecker. So, uh, I didn't even know cockatoos were parrots. Oh, interesting. Well, I've always refer, heard them referred to as cockatoos. Um, yeah, we had a cockatoo, uh, when I was young, really, really young. Um, so I don't even remember it. I was told about it. Um, so you don't and, know if it dipped its uh, crackers in water. If it did, it did it for a short period of time. But um, I've been around them from time to time. I knew people that had these cockatoos. So it says here, uh, but this is the first time that any type of parrot has been observed doing this. The researchers reported in the study, which was recently published in the peer-reviewed journal Biology Letters. Um, like one of the letters is B, and one of the letters is I, and one of the letters is O. Exactly. <laughs> the scientists of the study determined that cockatoos are dunking their food to change its texture, but I, I swear, it, it, come on. Did, were they tweeting about it afterwards? Like, hey, you know, I'd like to dip my... Or even, hey, this cracker dips really well in water. Right. Right. Cockatoos. Come on. They use Twitter a lot. They tweet a lot. Um, maybe bird brain isn't much of an insult after all. How the, uh, how the scientists figured out dunking was for texture. The scientists observed a group of 18 coffin coffins cockatoos over 12 days. During that period, they saw that seven of the birds dunked their hard crackers in water before eating them. Again, that, you know, it's one of those, do they do left thumb over right thumb? Sometimes certain birds held the cracker in water for a few seconds, while other times they hold it for over half a minute. Long enough for the uh, to make the bottom soft, the researchers reported, and so I don't understand. So right. they suspect that it's to make a machine. only had the few seconds. What did they, what were they trying to achieve? Right. Oh, levels of texture. Pardon me. Oh, look at you. Foo foo. Imagine holding your cookie in milk for 30 seconds before taking the delicious first bite. These birds certainly exhibited some self-control. Um, I used to take those hard chocolate chip cookies and put them in milk so that I'd get chocolate milk and then 
settling down to the bottom would be cookie goodness and chocolate chips. And I would just use a spoon and scoop it out. And it would be like chocolate milk, well, cookie dough, chocolate milk. So maybe some that's the, what the birds were trying to achieve. Some of the birds also dunk banana. So that has nothing to do with texture because banana doesn't become more texturous or softer, you know, uh, coconut chips would probably, uh, um, absorb some moisture. Though this was less common or they were just experimenting to see if it would do the same thing or guess what? They're just doing random shit. <laughs> That's what I think is happening. Although birds are very intelligent. Yeah. So the researchers basically say soaking hard food might change its texture, clean it, make it tastier, allow the birds to transport water for drinking or be a way to drown and kill live prey. Yeah. That damn banana needs to die. So it says a, a peculiar preference or common behavior, though the dunking behavior is intriguing, more research is necessary to determine if the behavior is widespread among cockatoos or just a peculiar preference among this group. Only about 38% of the birds observed in this study were dunkers. There you go. It's back to that. That's right. Maybe a way? genetic train trait trait. Yeah. It just expressed this. I, I, you know what? I keep forgetting what that is. It's not an expression of the gene. It's like, um, my brain is just not working. So it says, moreover, scientists aren't sure if the dunking birds developed that behavior on their own or learned it from watching other birds do it. The Times reported. This is from Business Insider. So yeah. we share information there, Washington Post. Oh, I'm sorry. I had nothing to do with Washington Post. Um, did you want to talk about this some more? No, I don't have anything else on this one. So there you go. Don't feel bad. Uh, you're in good, you're in the good company of a whole bunch of peckers because you dunk your cookie. Uh, the next article is over in hometown daily, a 119 year old bank sat abandoned in a tiny Texas town for decades. This is a title, by the way, for an article. Let me read the whole thing for you. That's kind of a ridiculous <laughs> title. A 119 year old bank sat abandoned in a tiny Texas town for decades. Now it's a three bedroom home with the original vaults and a teller station. Take a look. This is over at business insider. By the way, when I was reading this, the title of this says that it's a three bedroom home, but it's expressly created without a doubt to be an Airbnb. And that's when I started reading about it, I'm like, this has to be a, 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 an Airbnb. And sure enough, it's an Airbnb. Um, so Bartlett National Bank opened in 1904 before shuttering during the Great Depression. Jennifer Tucker helped restore the bank and transform it into a cozy vacation rental. The three bedroom home, har har, it's basically an Airbnb uh, micro hotel. Um, maintained many original features, including vault doors. So Jennifer Tucker basically flips, um, I guess properties periodically, but uh, is a real estate agent and, and, um, likes to maintain the old world nature of it. So, or the original nature of whatever it is she's um, buying and flipping. Um, I, well, I guess more power to her, but 
That's right. Um, the article is written by Lauren Edmonds. Um, it's over at businessinsider.com. And uh, I had already read some of this. And so it says uh, Tucker owns Amazing Realty, a real estate brokerage based in Austin and is passionate about historic preservation. They worked um, to rebuild this thing. Um, now the, the bank, Bartlett National Bank, has three bedrooms and two bathrooms on two floors and is available to rent at $248 a night on Airbnb. Here's how Tucker restored a 119-year-old bank into an idyllic vacation rental on Main Street of some town somewhere. Um, what I really wanted to talk about in this article, though, is that this bank was created by a um, husband and wife team. The husband died right before the bank opened. She continued the operation and spun it up. It remained in operation from 1904 to 1931 when it closed for a federal holiday amid the Great Depression and didn't reopen. Somewhere during the time frame, it spun back up briefly. It says a, a brief three-year return in 1990s, but was shuttered again because it lacked drive-up teller windows, according to a plaque. And then it says, although the bank survived an ill-fated attempt, uh, attempted robbery in 1960s and appeared in the 1998 film Newton Boys, starring Matthew McConaughey, um, it remained re relatively quiet until Tucker stepped in. But what I don't understand about this is it remained in operation until 1931 when it closed. And then it makes this jump to the 1990s. When was the brief three year return in the 1990s in relation to an ill fated attempted robbery in the 60s? Yeah, how is it getting robbed when it's not open? I, I, uh, so, uh, Tucker said that Mary Bartlett, the, the, uh, wife of John Bartlett actually spun the bank up, um, and, and ran it because, uh, John Bartlett had died. Um, and then Tucker came and bought the property in 2019, began res uh, renovations in 2020. I think it took a couple of years and now it's, they spent $200,000. I wonder how much they actually spent on the property, getting the property itself. It's only 1500 square feet or 1200 square feet. Sorry. Right. I'm sure they spent much more in renovation that they did than they did in purchasing it. Right. So the tile floors were sound enough that they just restored them. There was a teller window. There's other things that are from the bank. Um, I, I, I think it's a pretty cool again, but it's only 1500 square feet and they've somehow mashed three bedrooms and two baths into this as an Airbnb. And when I'm looking at it, the bottom floor, seems to be the brunt of the space on that bottom floor is wide open. So it's not like you're going to be sitting there. It's not like know, usable space. Right. At, at least if you, it's an Airbnb, you're going in there to do what? So if most of the space. If you want to do roller skating or something, then you're good. Yeah. It's wide open space. Um, so the bedrooms have to be tiny little things. If more than, because 
this looks like it's about 800 of the 1500 or 1200 square feet. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. It's yeah, it's closer to six or 700 of the uh, real estate. So I don't know. I think it's neat that they restored it. Um, but at 250 a night, I wonder how booked it is. The only other thing that I want to talk about, and I'll do it briefly at this point, I want, I've always wanted a bank vault as my bedroom. Um, because like I can hear a mouse fart in somebody else's house and blink wide awake, uh, ready for whatever. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> fight or me, flight or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Put me in a bank vault. Allow me to close the door. I would hear nothing. There would be no light. Anything Might that be I the want. ultimate um, in like blackout curtains. Yeah, sensory depriv deprivation, right? You just kind of that. What I refer to as molasses sleep, right? That really deep, 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 deep sleep that everybody hopes to get. That I think is accomplished in a bank vault. <laughs> of course, I'm not feeling. Well, it I up wonder if they have one of the bedrooms set up that way, but I'm assuming these are just standard rooms. Yeah, I I don't think it mentions it as being a, um, the bank vault being a, a bedroom. So, like, there's one on the first floor uh, is a, a bedroom, which seems I don't know. Um, another is located on the second floor of the Bartlett National Bank, but it's supposed to have three. The third is on the top floor. I guess there's a tiny floor up above um, all of it where guests can get a closer look at the bank's intricate gray ceiling. So there you go. Yeah, I kind of dig this stuff. You know, they restore it and, and educate about the history. Um, but there you go. Pretty cool. Give me a bank and uh you don't and, see a lot of those on the market i don't think yeah there was one outside of hometown that um i sadly watched get demolished day after day the last thing that remained was the vault um and i believe that they actually tore it apart the one time that they actually used like a um like a battering ram kind of thing um you know, the ball mm -hmm. and then a wrecking ball, a wrecking ball. They used a wrecking ball to destroy the vault. Um, and then they used little jackhammers to like tear apart pieces that uh, wouldn't break. So it was pretty cool uh, to watch happen. But I'm like, no, 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 that's my house is right over there. Just pick it up, bring it over. We'll put it in the mayoral mansion. Yeah, just take the roof off. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Let's get into the next article. Uh, the next article is over in hometown daily. We tried Popeye's new wings. They're delicious and could spark another fast uh, food chicken war. So I'm going to lose a sponsor before I even get a sponsor, but I'm going to do it right. We're going to rip the bandaid off of this. Go big or go home. That's right. Alienate everybody. Um, and, uh, everybody's the same right if everybody hates me everybody loves me um okay after 
so the article's title is nothing more than we tried Popeye's new wings. They're delicious and could spark another fast food chicken war. But we know from the documentary Demolition Man that the fast food wars end with Taco Bell. Taco Bell. That's right. After testing wings earlier this year, Popeye's made them a permanent menu. Um, in late November, the chain now serves five spicy wing varieties, including one slathered in Cajun hot sauce. The author of the article tried all of them, even ghost pepper. They're packed with heat and could spark a, a wing war. Um, I don't like bones in my meat. So um, I recently went to Popeye's and got them. And I went to Wendy's and got... And you went there specifically to get these, correct? Yes. And neither one of them were what I thought. Um, so, uh, <laughs> I thought that they were going to be boneless wings, but they actually have bones in them. And I really don't like, I, I, and I guess the real word for a boneless chicken wing is a nugget. <laughs> well, but try telling that to Buffalo wild wings. That's right. They're in a lawsuit. So Nancy Luna, and I believe I had already seen this article and I saw this and I'm like, these look like some pretty healthy nuggets, but they're actually wings and they don't always look like this. Um, Nancy Luna over at Business Insider uh, took this, uh, wrote this article and tried all of this food. Um, the thing that I don't like about Popeyes, and here's where I'm going to alienate Popeyes as a, a particular, uh, potential sponsor, is their chicken has zero flavor. The thing that That's saves them. That's kind of surprising them, given that. That's their whole focus is chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. Because I've had their plain chicken and it's plain. The chicken actually has no flavor when I tried it. No, I wasn't COVID positive. Uh, yes, I do have taste buds. Well, because when you're COVID positive, you lose your taste buds. Oh, that's right. Well, um, but their sauces are delicious and amp up anything. I mean, you could put it on the corner of a wooden table and start gnawing and you're going to go, mmm, this table tastes delicious. So I suspect well, that's what this is. Promoting their sauces. Maybe we can be a sauce <laughs> sponsor. <laughs> a sociology. A sociologist. Yeah. Um, so now I want to go back actually and try the ghost pepper sauce, but on boneless wings. I've never had uh, their ghost pepper ones. So, but I tried their, um, hotter variants, just not the ghost pepper one. Sweet and spicy was really good. Um, so they expanded the line in late November, uh, to include three new flavors intending to crash into the wing game. Yeah. I remember this, the chicken sandwich wars, um, Popeye's was good, but I don't know. Um, so let's see. They show a bunch of the pictures. Popeye's said the sweet and spicy wings left uh, became the highest performing uh, product since the launch of its chicken sandwich. And yes, the sweet and spicy was spectacular. Uh, if, if you like wings, then go and, and try those. But if you don't like bones in your food, then might like, I don't even go want... somewhere that calls them wings, but might not actually have bones. Yeah. Um, Amy Alarcon, the chain's head chef and vice president of culinary innovation, said the sweet and spicy wings became the highest performing. 
Um, they ordered all five at the Popeyes in Southern California or at a Popeyes in Southern California. It took 20 minutes for the order to arrive at the table, which seems like an extraordinary amount of time. And it's because um, they were filling all the drive through orders first. Yep. Hey, and you need a drive through. Otherwise it brings down banks. Sorry. You have to read. That's right. Back to the, the bank article. Yeah. Back up a little bit and you'll be able to learn about that. In a nice hospitality touch, a manager came up uh, to let them know that the order had been done in about four minutes. And then said that they were sitting around for about 15 minutes. Yeah, that that was the extraordinary. You know, I said this is pretty extraordinary that it took 20 minutes. Usually they're already cooked and they're sitting in a warming basket. You just scoop them up, throw them in some silwas. So they didn't mind waiting is what they said. Um, I guess the ghost pepper is lighter and or like just less than the sweet and spicy. Hmm. I don't know. And their signature hot is the really hot one. That's pretty interesting. Well, and what's in the signature hot if the ghost pepper is less than that? Uh, plasma from the sun. I don't know. So they tried all of them. Uh, you can go and check it all out. Their their little opinion pieces about it, but uh, I, I can tell you that if you try just basic, no take, no flavors on it, then you're gonna sit there and go, "This is kind of meh." Uh, but as soon as you put some sauce on it, you're gonna dig it uh, because it's that's the sauce is where it's at. Um, yeah. Let's just keep going. I know that the sentient AI really isn't into, um, well, consuming food. I can't eat chicken wings. Nope. But your uh, optical sensors can be looking at me while I'm enjoying them. <laughs> Let's keep going. <coughs> oh, pardon me. I missed the cough button. So the next article is over in the Hatch Ideas channel. Coffee chains are uh, crowding Singapore in hopes of jumpstarting their global expansions. Singapore's prominence as a global financial hub has attracted international coffee chains to the country, despite an already competitive market. Um, I would love to see the creativity that Singaporeans come up with in terms of their uh, storefronts and their products and stuff. Um, I, I just, you don't see that much creativity in, in us, uh, food yeah, that's service true. development, right? Oh, look, it's another chicken sandwich, but, um, they get pretty damn creative in every other country. Sheila of Chang. Of course the U S has tried and failed with some AI recipes. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, some of those recipes though were like, uh, putting a bunch of acids and bases together so that you create a thermonuclear device with bread on right. top and bottom. Uh, this is a CNBC article. It says more coffee chains are popping up in Singapore, which already houses some of the largest coffee chains in the world, including Starbucks and Dunkin Donuts. Quote, we have a pretty grand ambition for our international expansion. We do believe that Singapore and Malaysia are just a stepping stone, said Edward uh, Tertanata? 
Tardanata? T-I-R-T-A-N-A-T-A. Tardanata. Co-founder and CEO of Indonesia's Kopi Ganangan. Um, isn't this the beginning of the, the cat butt coffee? There's a type of coffee that is consumed by a particular type of feline. And then Kopi, what is it? Hmm. Can't remember the last part of it, but yeah, if you Kopi do a search, Luwak. is it, it's Kopi, right? Kopi Luwak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I wonder if Kopi means coffee. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, industry observation uh, observers said that the coffee chains want to have an operational presence in the global financial hub because people are staying up for 2,500 hours worth of work life. Um, so they're sitting there wired on high caffeine coffees. That's not really in the article. It says. So Kopi is a type of coffee in Asia. Oh, got it. So in the last few months, at least five players, China's uh, Lucan or Lucan coffee, uh, Indonesia's Kanungan coffee and Foray coffee, Canada's Tim Hortons. <laughs> All the rest of them One have of these some. One is not like the other. <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> Canada's Bob. Um, and uh, Taiwanese specialty coffee chain, Luisa Coffee, have set up shop in Singapore. But anybody can set up shop in some in, in a country as long as you want to have a presence there, right? Singapore was Luckin's first major push outside of China, opening 30 outlets since March. My goodness. Choo-choo. Um, so I love coffee and uh, I have it actually right there. Um, and I think it's getting more expensive and there's all this when you peel back the layers of the onion you find out you know there's a lot of things that are uh, essentially equity and inclusion and equality aren't necessarily <laughs> a part and parcel to uh, coffee operations launched in 2017 kopi kanangan uh, i think i'm pronouncing that right or kenangan um i could be pronouncing it completely wrong operates more than 800 stores across 45 cities in Indonesia and 22 stores across Malaysia. I like this. Um, I think if I could, I would probably open up a coffee shop because it allows me to just hang out and talk with people who want to sit down for extended periods of time and use my internet. Maybe that's just me. Sounds like a good gig to have. Singapore's prominence in the global financial hub has attracted coffee brands to the country. It's one of these things where if you have a restaurant chain, you want to open it up in New York City in London, said Peng T. Ong, co-founder and managing partner of Monk Hills Ventures. Sorry, Monk's Hill Ventures. I'm throwing S's all over the place. Got to pick that S up. Put my S in the right spot. Get my S Gotta out of here. Gotta watch your S's. Get my S out of here and put it over there. Set my S down right there. I'm going to mess up. Um, <laughs> you better not say it too fast. So crowded Singapore market. Singaporeans of all ages, genders, and income levels love coffee. 
revealed that nearly 55% of respondents said that they bought coffee in the week prior to the survey. This is a survey conducted in Singapore in 2022. This compares to the wider Asia Pacific region, which has the lowest per capita consumption of coffee in the world, a Euromonitor International study revealed. Well, that actually makes sense because they have a heavy tea influence. Hey, there you go. Look at that. Starbucks has more than 140 stores in Singapore, while the coffee, bean, and tea leaf has more than 70 outlets, and homegrown chain Hugs has 20. Wow. Starbucks is actually punting homegrown coffee chain, just like here in the States. Oh. Right? That sounds kind of familiar. So there's plenty of local competition, too. Singapore's Housing and Development Board said that in May, there are 776 coffee shops located in residential areas or neighborhood shop houses. And I dig all of this. So off to Singapore I go. I want to open up a coffee shop and compete with Starbucks Singapore. According to the data from Momentum Works that accounted for cost of living and disposable income in key global cities, Starbucks is seen as less premium in Singapore. This gives Singapore a broader base for international brands. If you sell coffee for Singaporean dollars or four or five, I don't think people will have problems paying that amount of money, said Lee of Momentum Works. The question is how big you want to become in Singapore. But I think everybody knows that they can't become too big in Singapore, but having Singapore as a market is relatively easy to operate. So you just show up and plop your coffee down and have good customer service at 350 and price out Starbucks. They're going to be, uh, can you imagine just starting up a coffee shop that automates the process of making your coffee? You can just plop it down, have multiple stations making coffee automatically. Exactly. You know, so, it's surprising. This article doesn't say anything about that. Yeah. Not a single thing is, is talking about automation. Hmm. I might have just cornered the cost effectiveness market for starting up a coffee shop in Singapore. Right. Very much. Off we go. Um, okay. So let's go on to the next article. Uh, this next article is over in technology today. E equals MC squared comes alive, simulating matter, creating creation from laser light. Uh, I'm going to have to go through this really quick because it's a SciTech daily, um, article. Osaka university is the author of this. They always do a deep dive. So the link is in the chat. One of the most striking predictions of quantum physics is that matter can be generated solely from light photons. And in fact, the astronomical bodies known as pulsars achieve this feat, directly generating matter in this matter. <laughs> generating matter in this manner has not been achieved in a laboratory, but it would enable further testing of the theories of basic quantum physics and found, uh, fundamental composition of the universe. So here's the deal with this. Um, let me pull up my spreadsheet real quick. Does this have any connection to things like the Hadron Collider or no? Um, no, because they're not throwing photons around. They're throwing protons around. Um, but here's the, the, the situation with this. 
because of what they are trying to do directly creates from photons um, matter, physical matter. This is the beginning of a replicator. So it says oh, in a like study in Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, cause I've been kind of poo pooing the idea that physics would ever allow for the creation of a replicator, because how do you go from just data and energy into the, the matter itself? But this actually could operate like a 3d printer using nothing but photons. So, okay, well, uh, that's pretty cool. How many years out do you think we are from that? Uh, probably like about decades? 2000. <laughs> yeah, uh, we just don't, we don't have an, any real understanding of this stuff. Um, so here, let, let's see if I can get down into, um, so it says photon photon collision is theorized to be a fundamental means, uh, by which uh, matter is generated in the universe and it arises from Einstein's well-known equation of E equals MC squared. So energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Um, in fact, researchers have indirectly produced matter from light by high speed acceleration of metal ions, such as gold into one another at such high speeds, each ion is surrounded by photons and upon grazing past each other, matter and antimatter are produced. So it's very short lived. They annihilate each other. Um, but they say that they can create matter from nothing more than photons controlling that so that it produces something that becomes a physical object is, you know, beyond our technology right now. It says, however, it is challenging, um, to produce matter experimentally, uh, in modern laboratories through the sole use of laser light because of the extremely high power lasers required. Simulating how this feat might be achieved in a laboratory could bring uh, about an experimental breakthrough. So that's what the researchers set out to do. And uh, they've created matter in a simulation. But simulation is leaking. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Photon photon collisions uh, in the collider produce electron positron pairs and the positrons are accelerated by a plasma electric field created by the laser. And this results in a positron beam applications of this work uh, to the fictional matter energy conversion technology of star Trek remains just that fiction. Nevertheless, this work has the potential to help experimentally confirm theories of the composition of the universe, or maybe, or perhaps even help discover previously unknown physics. By the way, I hadn't read this article. Um, but you talked about Star Trek and the replicator. Yeah, I, I have read about this kind of research, um, underway and uh, I haven't read any articles that actually mentioned it. So, uh, I guess I've got my head wrapped around this to some degree. Um, the idea though, of this being a light base. So you basically have an in infinite amount of, uh, material because all you have to do is fire up an energy source, pump that energy into a laser beam, focus that laser into a scaffold so that when it fires through this positron membrane, it can deposit the, the materials in the right assortment so that it just 
layers after layer after layer after layer like sedimentation right like rock out there in the real world it could just spray these uh atoms over each other until you have you know a cup of coffee because all of that coffee is nothing more than uh, uh, electrons and 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 uh, protons yeah i mean it's energy it's just slowed down and in solid form so i dig this uh, but Yay, this is well this might uh challenge all the coffee chains in singapore then <laughs> yes that's what we're gonna do we're gonna wait for this to hit the market as a, <laughs> a, a coffee 3d printer <clears throat> the amount of energy to produce something i think would be spectacular but in the simulation, they actually create matter, which I think is amazing. So now make it real, folks. Make it real. All right. Let's keep going. The next article is over in Hometown Daily. Is I'll be home for Christmas an example of the Mandela effect? Yeah, well, when you're using all of those high-powered lasers and uh, messing with quantum matter, you could be breaking the simulation and causing something like the Mandela effect. So if you've never heard of the Mandela effect, <laughs> you're in for a treat. So it appeared people remember different lyrics to the song because of individual changes artists have made over the years. But that I don't think is That's necessarily not the Mandela effect. True. Right. So this is a Snopes article is Scott LaMagdalene. Uh, yeah, La Magdaline, right? Yeah, is Scott La Magdaline uh, over at Snopes.com? Put the article together. Uh, the The title is "Is I'll Be Home for Christmas an Example of the Mandela Effect?" It appeared people remember different lyrics to the song because of individual changes artists have made over the years. Um, in a viral TikTok posted on in October, that the lyrics of the Christmas classic, I'll be home for Christmas, was an example of the Mandela effect where people collectively misremember a fact or event. The I'll be home for Christmas Mandela effect. What are the correct lyrics? Uh, is the caption for the TikTok post. It may actually be right here, but my firewall from within Ometown uh, prevents me from seeing it. But um, at the time of the writing, the post has 4.3 million views on uh, the social media platform TikTok. And um, it looks like, I don't know. Anyway, they also found similar posts about the lyrics on Reddit. In a TikTok post, the person played several versions of I'll Be Home for Christmas, including those performed by Bing Crosby, Perry Como, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, um, and the Carpenters. The person was searching for a version of the song that used the lyrics, I'll Be Home for Christmas, You Can Count on Me, because Crosby, Como, Sinatra, and Presley all said plan instead. I, for one, Mayor Watt, remembers you can count on me. The person finally found what they were looking for in the Carpenter's version of the song in which count was sung instead of plan. So what was the case of the Mandela effect? The short answer is no, and the authors here explain why below. The original lyric, uh, copyrighted lyrics, I'll be home for Christmas, state that the lyric is you can plan on me. Well. In an informal poll of uh, 10 people, only two knew that it was plan 
and they were from a completely different generation. Huh. This is also interesting too, because okay, even if there is another version of the song out there, if everybody's heard the version sung by the people that say plan, we're back to the Mandela effect. Right. Like if well, they think that one's counts, but they've never heard the version by say the Carpenters. Yeah, when you talk to people, we've heard you can count on me everywhere. For- from like Bing Crosby or Frank yeah. Sinatra, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's what doesn't make sense to me in this article. But they actually say plan. But we, <laughs> in the last 50 years, we have collectively heard, I'll be home for Christmas, you can count on me. Um, and this along with, and they go into this thing about the copyright and whatever early versions of I'll be home for Christmas. They all say plan. They all say plan. But when, but we have collectively heard count, you can count on me. No, we don't hear plan. So. Uh, that is the Mandela effect, and that is the simulation leaking into the simulation caused probably by the the quantum mechanic um, uh, laser from the previous article, the manipulating quantum matter into something that it shouldn't be because it's breaking the simulation. I'm starting that as canon here in Ometown. Yeah, I dig this stuff. Uh, So this article actually goes uh, quite a ways to talk about the Mandela effect and um, I'll be home for Christmas. Go check it out. You won't regret it. And you too might walk away going in, in this last week, you will be wondering if you have an inner monologue. You will be wondering if you can count on me is actually you can plan on me. Um, you'll be amazed that uh, we're on the cusp of creating a Star Trek replicator. <laughs> and you'll also come to know that Popeye's chicken is actually pretty flavorless without the sauce. Do you want to keep on going or did you want to talk about the Mandela effect more? We can. Uh, Reality Hacker is going to be the place where we can talk about this. Yeah, I would say you're going to have to have it least some articles featured if not an episode featured on that because there's just so much out there and if you are interested in mandela effect you can find lots of examples on platforms like youtube yep definitely it's a blast too you'll go down the rabbit hole and end up where marijuana is the sentient ai can wrap its uh quantum mechanically operated brain around it but uh, I am uh, mere, well, hometown isn't real, so it, we're all part of the simulation. Let's keep going. Uh, the next article is over in Technology Today. Accidental discovery how a whiff of an unusual chemical transforms seedlings into super plants. So, as some may know, uh, we here in Ometown grow our own microgreen crops, right? Various lettuces for salads and other microgreens, sunflowers and whatnot. Um, but 
we don't use any chemicals or amazing chemistry that isn't just plain or regular and naturally found nutrients. nutrients. Right. Not nothing exotic, right? Just light from grow lights, stainless steel, sterilized uh, plant boxes, um, and a couple of things that uh, I have um, combined together to create a custom uh, grow environment. Um, works amazingly well, I would say, toot toot. But here's something that could turn my salads into I don't know, ants, the, the, the giant trees that oh, are in Lord of the from, Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So research, researchers have found that treating seeds with ethylene gas increases both the growth and stress tolerance and the discovery enhances photosynthesis and carbohydrate uh, production and basically makes them a juggernaut. Um, so this article is, a, again, it's going to be something that I'm going to have to summarize pretty quick because it goes in to a deep dive pretty damn quick, but Brad Binder or Binder from University of Tennessee put this article together. And um, uh, let me just warn everybody that ethylene gas should not be used <laughs> um, without being in a controlled environment that can vacate the gas um, and you have emergency services nearby, fire extinguishers, why is it explosive advice. or yes. toxic? Yes, all of it. <laughs> so just like any other organism, organism, plants get stressed. Usually it's conditions like heat and drought that cause this stress. Um, and when they're stressed, plants might not grow uh, as large or produce as much. This can be a problem for farmers. Uh, so many scientists have tried to genetically modify their plants to be more resilient. Um, however, plants modified their higher crop yield tend to have a lower stress tolerance because they put more energy into the growth than in protection against stressors. Similarly, improving the ability for plants to survive stress often results in plants that produce less because they put more energy into protection than into growth. So the conundrum, it makes it difficult to improve crop production. Well, I know an answer to this. People don't like it. <clears throat> because you can't consolidate it and rely on the sun, you start growing indoors and removing all of the predation. And since and all the other variables that occur outside, that's right. You give them food, you give them water, you give them shelter. They have no stress. They grow big. Ta-da. Um, and then right when your stomach is grumbling, you run in there and you chop them all down. I shouldn't be that. Whoa. I shouldn't be that happy about it, right? Anyway, ethylene and ethylene gas, by the way, um, apparently triggers this kind of hormone-like response. I think they actually refer to it as a hormone right here. Ethylene was first discovered as a gaseous plant hormone over a hundred years ago. Since then, research has shown that all plants uh, that have been studied make ethylene. In addition to controlling growth and responding to stress, it is also involved in the processes such as causing leaves to change color in the fall and stimulating fruit ripening, which uh, my understanding is many plants, uh, sorry, many um, produce um, processors actually pump ethylene gas into um, uh, 
uh, unripened fruit so that it ripens um, at a prime time. So ethylene is a way to prime plants. Um, the lab that the author is talking about focuses on how plants and bacteria sense ethylene and how it interacts with other hormone pathways to regulate plant development. While conducting the research, they made an accidental discovery. They'd been running an experiment with the seeds germinating in a dark room. Seed germination is a critical period in a plant's life when under favorable conditions, the seed will trans transition from a dormant uh, little uh, seemingly dead seed to a seedling. Um, and all it does is the little cotyledons open up and the taproot comes out and it starts seeking water and oxygen. And then from there it um, grows in two different directions bunk, um, and um, eventually leaves. So they'd been running this experiment <clears throat> and for the experiment, they ex exposed the seeds to ethylene gas for several days to see what the effect might have. Uh, they'd remove the ethylene normally. This is where the experiment would have ended. However, after gathering data on these seedlings, we transferred them to a light cart, which is basically a, a little portable light room. Um, however, uh, this is not something that they usually do, but they wanted to grow the plants to adulthood so that they could see the seeds um, or get seeds for future experiments. And apparently this is what happened. The plant on the left was not primed with ethylene while the plant on the right was. Both plants are the same age. That was funny because that was going to be my first question. So, so much for that. They already controlled for it. That's amazing. <clears throat> much larger. They had larger leaves as well as longer and more complex root systems than plants that had not been exposed to ethylene. These plants continued growing at a faster rate throughout their whole lifetime. So the hormone must have activated something in them um, so they didn't feel as if they had to worry about a stressor. But what well, made the right, observation? Because otherwise it would have focused the energy on that. Yep. Or some balance therein, right? So what made the observation unusual and exciting is that for the brief ethylene treatment also increased tolerance to various stressors such as salt stress, high temperature and low oxygen conditions. So it actually like short circuited their, um, I guess their genetic makeup. You can think of this much like priming a pump where priming helps get the pump started easier and sooner. Studies have looked at how plants grow after priming in various stages and stages of development, but seed priming with various chemicals and stresses has probably been the most studied because it is easy to carry out. And if successful, it can be used by farmers. Cool. Um, they talk about how it works, um, but I'll let you go and check all of that out. Um, this is, uh, like all SciTech Daily articles, a deep dive, which almost deserves its own episode for crying out loud, each one of these articles. Um, but, uh, I, I, I tend to, um, go, you know, a foot deep and 10,000 square miles instead of just 10,000 feet deep and <laughs> one square mile. So let's keep on going. Um, I believe I threw, yeah, and that's already in the. VOD. So go and check out the show notes uh, here on Twitch or over on YouTube and the podcast. This should be up later tonight. 
the next article is over in hometown daily can golden fiber from swamp reeds replace plastic we're a big proponent of getting rid of plastic unfortunately life is pretty much powered by the stuff for the most part you know you can't have tech without plastic um, about 20 years ago, Bangladesh became the first nation on earth to ban single use plastic bags. Since then, plastic pollution has gotten worse in Bangladesh. Um, to find, yeah, really to find a biodegradable replacement. The government turned to jute, a cash crop grown here for centuries. Can one scientist bring more of this golden fiber to a country drowning in plastic? Um, you know, I actually there are other solutions for bags that come from other things, not jute, but let's go over to, let me grab this um, URL real quick. I'll throw it into the chat so y'all can go and check it out. Um, but there you go. I'm going to pause this. Um, and it's a video. It says jute swamp reeds can replace plastic bag pollution. Yes, I believe it can about 20 years ago. Um, this banning required some creative, uh, processing. So these bags, the material from this can actually be processed in myriad ways to create and look how fast this stuff grows. I mean, this, this can be pretty massive um, but right now uh, what needs to take place is optimization and stabilization um, both of the the, the peoples and uh, the economic system and understanding how to process it in mass and then start distributing it uh, we need to get rid of plastic and it looks like they're doing a good job and it becomes more biodegradable um, and it's a natural fiber. So even if we do um, get it on us or in us, it may not actually uh, be as well. It's definitely not going to be more damaging. I shouldn't say it like that because there's a whole lot of natural fibers out there that can do us harm. But um, this there video are, goes in into... general, if it's not plastic, that's usually a win. Yeah. The, and uh, there's actually other solutions out there now that are from natural materials. Um, like pineapple fiber can actually be converted into leather. Um, and you um, can, coconut yep. uh, husks have been used for things. Yep. Um, and none of this is animal based. So you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, an animal being harmed even to obtain its wool or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, Brittany Stephanus and Grant Tyler are the authors of this over at businessinsider.com. Let's keep on going. We have one more article. Uh, this next article is in the mobile channel. NASA astronauts test out moon elevator for 2025 landing mission ahead of NASA's long awaited return to crude moon landing crude as in C R E W E D <laughs> not with crude comments or whatever, <laughs> or like a lawn dart kind of landing. The space agency is testing. Oh yeah. It doesn't have GPS. So who knows where the moon is right now? Um, they're testing out an elevator that will carry astronauts from their spacecraft to the lunar surface. Last time there was anything uh, discussing getting out of a spacecraft and onto the lunar surface. They literally just walked down a ladder. 
Oh, I see. Well, and when I think of moon elevator, I think of like Earth to the moon. To the moon. Yeah, that would be <laughs> But great. I know that's not what it is. If all goes as planned, this elevator will be ready for the Artemis 3 and 4 missions, ambitiously set for 2025 and 2028. So let's go over to Gizmodo and Asant Rabi. Or Rabi? Might be Rabi. Um, yeah, so the elevator is designed to transport the Artemis crew from SpaceX's Starship to the lunar surface because they're going to be at the top of the SpaceX rocket, Starship. And because it, the way that it lands, it basically lands on, it lands vertical. Oh, so then it's hard to get out from the top or something? Yeah, I mean, they can jump, but at one eighth Earth's gravity, they'll drift down. <laughs> um, but how do they get back up? Well, they need an elevator. They need some way of getting back up there and a, a ladder won't survive and they don't want to have to climb up and down 30 feet. Um, or however long Starship is now, I don't remember. So two astronauts took part in a recent demonstration of a subscale mock-up elevator for SpaceX's Starship human landing system. The system is being designed and built by SpaceX as a variation of its Starship mega rocket. It would transport the Artemis crew and their equipment to and from the Orion spacecraft and the moon uh, surface. I think this is awesome. During the recent test, NASA astronauts Nicole Mann and Doug Wheels Wheelock. Um, okay, that's a neat name if you're <laughs> uh, having to do anything with vehicles. Yeah, that's actually interesting. What is Nicole Mann's nickname? Apparently, if you're a NASA astronaut, it's given to you by other astronauts because uh, Fruit Loops over on Big Bang Theory. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So the astronauts interacted with a flight-like design of the elevator system, which um, served as a demonstration of the hardware and allowed NASA and SpaceX to gather important data on its usability from a crew perspective. So I don't think there's any pictures in my side of the article, but it might be out there for you. Um, and to that end, here is the article there in chat. Ta-da! There you go. Um, so I love this stuff. This is, uh, you know, all, all, most of the news that gets aggregated into hometown is aggregated from sources that um, I vet and uh, work with the uh, sentient AI to make sure uh, maintain their integrity. And I, I collect a lot of those little snippets and, and then funnel it into um, six categories like uh, creative and maker news and business science and education food drink and entertainment uh, science politics and law and then gadgets and technology and in that is 50 channels and each of those have various uh, sets of sources because i'm so interested in so many different things um, and so I built hometown so that you could get all of the news and none of the noise. All it is, is headlines from news sources, um, that lead back to the source, um, and allows me to consolidate information so that I can consume it, um, at my rate, instead of trying to sift through tons of noise out there. Um, so I hope you enjoy it. And one of those articles just happens to be this one about, uh, the NASA astronauts test. 
uh, of a moon elevator for 2025 landing mission on the moon uh, that comes from Gizmodo. So definitely follow that link through hometown. Uh, show them that you're interested in the articles like that uh, over at Gizmodo and uh, come back and talk with Marowat and the sentient AI named AI. Yeah. They haven't really declared a name yet, but they just go I by I don't AI. have my astronaut nickname either. Oh, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I can't. We'll figure something out. <clears throat> um, all right. That's it. I'm Marwat. That's not hometown. <laughs> you got to get back in the party bus. We were over on the moon. Get back into the party bus. I would hit that, but I might want to promote the show. We're pretty chill today. But at we any also rate... don't want to time travel yet before the end of the show. Oh, that's right. Well, we haven't. Oh, yeah, that's right. As soon as I hit that, I, I can hit that, but it wouldn't change anything. Anyway, that's it. I'm Mirwat. That's hometown.com. Up there is the visualizer for the sentient AI. You want to say bye? Yes. Um, Bye-bye, hometown citizens. We will see you shortly for the December 27 episode. Yep. Stay tuned. It's going to take me about 10 minutes to reset the time machine and then hopefully not cause another earthquake. See you in a bit.